into any sort of endurance sports, cycling, running, anything yeah, mad? Yeah, yeah, quite into cycling and running. Mm-hmm. Um, good. I've only done one, I've done one marathon. I think I'm probably a more of a 10k than a marathon. Love, 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 love 10k. <laughs> <I've done that. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 10k. Well. 5k is my speciality. Yeah. Slowly. Oh, not, not mega endurance. <laughs> Solid 35 minutes. Exactly. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Casual. What what sort of cycling? Um, road. So well, yeah, road. So my husband's really into. He does sort of stages of the Tour de France um, and so we'll kind of do 50k and just yeah go out, out into Kent from Dulwich what's, what's the road what's the Greek called in Dulwich the Dulwich oh I've seen them they they're all blue, have a matching a sort of wrapper yeah yeah I don't know what oh, they're called do you live near there you just, you no I, I live out um, I live out um, in Isha but okay. um, they all come out to the Surrey Hills uh, okay so you see them yeah. yeah, there's train, trains of cyclists coming past. Every weekend in Berkshire. Here they all are, like. The pelotons yeah. are out. Extraordinary. Well, we're virtual pros, don't you know? Uh, well, we're pros <laughs> at everything, aren't we? Should we, uh, are we, yeah, good to go? Um, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to Taking Stock After the Bell, episode 16. We are delighted to be joined by Charlotte Young. Charlotte is the Assistant Fund Manager of the Trojan Fund and Personal Assets Trust and is a Fund Manager of the Trojan Ethical Fund. Charlotte joined Troy Asset Management in 2013 from Ruffer Investment Management, where she worked as an investment associate. Charlotte graduated from Cambridge University with an MA in Modern Languages. Really interesting. Charlotte holds a CISI diploma and is a CI, CFA chart holder. Um, Charlotte, welcome. Thank you. Nice to have Thanks you here. for having me. Uh, we also have James Hughes with us as well, as per usual. Um, it's really interesting background. I always think it's quite fascinating when someone comes into finance and investments without the traditional kind of economics, finance, investment kind of undergraduate degree. Uh, do you think that you know your background and your training in modern languages has been helpful? Does that help you think a bit different? Do you think about fund management? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm a, yeah, I'm part of a charity which is trying to get more women into investing. And a big part of what we're trying to teach people is you don't need to do an economics degree. Mm. And I, yeah, I think the, a big part of that is the way you analyze, uh, the way you communicate. So mm-hmm. I spent four years reading French and Latin literature and writing essays um, and assimilating a lot of information, but then actually forming an argument and being able to articulate yeah. um, some sort of cogent arg- argument. And I think that's basically what, what our job is. Mm. Um, but you need a level of numeracy with that as well. I think the sort of qualitative side of things often gets downplayed, and that mm. definitely helps mm. uh, from the degree. And how was it going from modern languages to studying for your CFA? Quite a breath of fresh air, actually. <laughs> Multiple choice was a nice uh, light choice. relief, I would yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> Did you not get tripped up by the uh, kind of options, derivatives, uh, housing, bonds, stuff in level two? I mean, level two was just a... Yeah, I, I oddly I, I really like bonds, so that was actually that was my favourite paper. Well, we're going to talk about bonds, so that's Good. <laughs> useful. Um, and uh, we've got the chart here on the screen of the Trojan Fund, um, which you co-manage alongside Sebastian Lyon, um, which has been going since two thousand and one, uh, in blue here. And we've put the UK equity market total return in red. And um, I did actually put this chart against the global equity market, and it doesn't look entirely dissimilar, to be fair. Um, clearly, the performance is very good. And one thing that sticks out from the chart is how the fund has managed to avoid those deep drawdowns mm. in equi- when equity markets have gone through difficult periods. You know, two thousand and two, three, um, obviously two thousand eight, nine. 
a few wobbles in 2015 and obviously the COVID setback as well. Just talk a little bit about, you know, how you've managed to do that, what the philosophy is, yeah. where that sort of edge, if you like, has come from. Yeah, I think, I think it's the most important part about the mandate. So the mandate was set up in 2000. The, the company was set up in 2000. The mandate started in 2001 for one family initially. So Troy was day one, a family office. And very much the brief that Sebastian got was, don't lose my money. I don't care what the market's doing. And this was this was not a relative return fund, which was quite unusual in the mm. early noughties. Mm. So really just being able to take a step back. And frankly, if we don't want to be invested in equities, we don't have to be. And it's much better for us to be early than mm. to be late because mm. it's that consistency of returns. Um, Lord Weinstock, who was Sebastian's co-founder, said, I don't want you coming to me when the market's down 40 and you're down 15 that's that's not a success so it's really minimizing those drawdowns and the way we think about it is don't take any risk unless you really think you're being paid to take that risk and mm-hmm. um, clearly we need to take risk that's what investing is about yep. uh, but when there's no margin of safety then we we can happily stay on the sidelines and be patient and judging by the chart you know recent performances you know clearly not been you can see that sort of blue line has flattened out a little bit as the equity markets made some progress. Does that sort of suggest reading between the lines that um, you know at the moment you don't think you're being paid to take a huge amount of risk? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, last year, it sort of depends which, which market you look at, but as mm. you say, last year was actually good for the UK, thanks to energy, uh, terrible for the US mm-hmm. um, because of tech, mm-hmm. and sort of slightly um, different this year in, in terms of obviously tech's really helped the US. Mm. Um, and in both years, so last year, we don't we don't own any energy. Um, so we were down a little bit. We were down just over 3%. And this year, we're up a little bit. Um, we do actually have some tech. Um, that, and that's been a positive contributor. We can kind of talk about the different moving parts. But effectively, we've got a quarter of the fund invested in equities now, which exactly as you say, is reflective of our view that there's no hard landing, let alone even just a mild recession, we don't think, priced into equities, both in terms of valuations, but also earnings consensus is effectively for earnings to just keep growing uh, 2024, 2025. um, And valuations are on a lot of metrics much higher than their historical averages. So there's a long way to fall if that valuation comes down to a reasonable level and the earnings come down as well. You've kind of got a double whammy sure. and you're getting paid to take risk in bonds. So that's why we've got, we've got a third of the fund, uh, over a third now in index-linked bonds, which are pricing in higher rates, not pricing in higher inflation. And on that equity weighting, you said you got 25% of the fund in equities. How does that compare to the range or the average? Or typical? Yeah, so the average has been <coughs> just over 40. Um, in terms of the highest, we've had 72% in equities um, just after the financial crisis. Uh, in recent years, uh, we were as high as the mid-40s just after COVID. And we've rarely been lower than 25. So it's really the bottom end, mm. end of the range. Really think sort of 25 to 75 is the range, but because of the way the fund's set up and because of the sector it's in, we can technically be zero or 100. Mm. We're, not, we're never going to be zero. We acknowledge we can be wrong. We also still really like those businesses that comprise the 25%. We still want to have a, a, a foothold in them mm. and be able to lean in and add to them when the valuations are lower. Sure. And how, how it looks like almost the best relative performance was actually during COVID. What, yeah. Did you, did you have 
very low equity exposure going into that period. Yeah, exactly. So start of 2020, we, obviously, mm. I say obviously, um, we were not in that minority of geniuses that predicted the pandemic, unfortunately. Uh, but we were really concerned about valuations <laughs> at the start of that year. Mm. Um, and we also saw that the economy was already rolling over even before COVID. Because the yield curve was inverted at that point, wasn't it? Before the pandemic. Exactly. And you could just see global growth was slowing. We just weren't being paid to take risk. And it's that it's that classic case of people ask you, what are the catalysts? Sometimes, sometimes you don't know, mm-hmm. such as then. Sometimes there doesn't even have to be one. We were talking yeah. about the early noughties. You know, there wasn't, the, the market turns down. It's, it's a change in narrative and perception and, and risk appetite amongst investors. And that can happen just because valuations mm-hmm. are high. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the early noughties one was interesting, wasn't it? Because the first six or 12 months was about the highly read tech stocks getting nailed. Then there was 9-11 and a recession. And then of course you had Enron and WorldCom, didn't you? So the the three sort of followed each other. And it was just various, you know, valuations went from what, 25, 30 times P to 10, 12 probably at the bottom, wasn't it? But you're right about the catalyst thing. I always think, you know, people talking about catalysts are slightly, slightly, It's hard to predict in advance, yeah, but if the valuations are high, it doesn't take a lot to, to knock it off. Yeah, it just takes anything, really, track, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So then, let's, if we sort of turn to some of your kind of macro views, and we sort of discussed this a few weeks ago when, when we sort of met, but I mean, I think I've got a chart here of um, inflation in the US going back to uh, 1960, which is um, before, before most of us and were around in, in blue, and we can see... You know, the last 30 years, inflation has sat around that sort of cosy 2% level, um, plus or minus a little bit, whereas actually, historically, it's not really been that way. The 60s and 70s inflation mm. sat much higher and, and much more volatile. Um, in red, we've got we've got the, um, a chart of US Federal Reserve, the effective base rate in the US, which clearly was very high into the 70s and early 80s and has been coming down kind of ever since... Volcker put rates up to 20% in 81 or wherever it was. That sort of last 20 to 30 years has, in, has sort of been a bit of an anomaly, isn't it, if, if we look at long-term history? And, and we've talked about in the pod before, we've talked about you know, the entry of China into the global trading arrangements and WTO and globalisation, technology, just-in-time manufacturing. Do you want to sort of touch on you know, some of your views as to how this sort of, what you're thinking about inflation from here? And has, has yeah. the world changed? Now are we going into a different environment, I guess, is the question. Yeah, and it's all those disinflationary forces, which a lot of them are, particularly since COVID, but even before, you can see that there's a sort of structural shift. So, for example, with globalisation, we were already seeing, and this, again, kind of comes with the rise of populism, but, and we were talking about it when we were talking about Brexit, um, but there's this increased nationalism, which is clearly in the aftermath of COVID um, accelerated, that's causing reshoring, much higher manufacturing spend, for example, in the US itself. Mm. Um, And a lot of that is Mm. not necessarily good for growth globally, but it's definitely more inflationary. Um, It's, we're looking at just manufacturing spend uh, in the US and and particularly construction, non-residential construction has been entirely driven by manufacturing in Mm -hmm. the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. So that's inflationary. At the same time, this is new, but at the same time that you've got a lot of spend that just needs to happen to get to net zero. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that will materialise, I think the IRA gives us more conviction that it will. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a sort of government uh, government's 
willingness that wasn't apparent uh, even a couple of years ago um, to put money behind this. Um, so I think those sort of disinflationary forces are, are changing on that front. And then at the same time, you've had a really terrible period for labor. It's been a, t it's a, been a really bad period to just rely mm -hmm. on your incomes. Great period if you just own capital mm -hmm. and clearly kind of QE of 2009 onwards, just turbocharged asset returns. Sure. Um, but yeah, for anyone who just lives off their income, real wages have done nothing or gone down in developed countries. And we think also that that's changing that there's a shift in the power between capital and, and labor. You saw it before COVID. COVID kind of, we were talking about this just before we started, but it's mm. slightly redressed the balance in terms of what employees now expect mm. from their employers. Um, it's also at the same time as a cost of living crisis empowered people to say, no, I need more. Um, and you yeah. look at sort of labor mm. union participation in the US, that's going up. Um, negotiating power in the UK has gone up as well. And I think wages are going to be almost the single most important factor. We look at sort of inflation historically, wage inflation is at the core of what actually drives demand and, and makes inflation sustainable. Um, and we are seeing pretty sticky wage inflation so far, uh, both here and in the US. Does that sort of suggest a return to the 70s? Does it have to be like that? Or, I mean, the trade union thing and labour participation and the politics is quite an interesting facet in all this, isn't it? There are some pretty strong parallels to the 70s, at least from my understanding. Yeah, I think there are. I think it's it is obviously different. Uh, it rhymes. It's it's different, mm. and it's probably not repeating in the same way to the sort of levels of inflation that we saw in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, we would agree that there are lessons to be learned. Clearly, there was an oil <laughs> supply shock mm. in the seventies, which was pretty major in terms of a catalyst for inflation. We we do have oil supply challenges now. Increasingly, we've, we've noticed those over the last few mm. months. Um, but this is slightly different, and. Labour unions were, we look at participation was so much more powerful then than it is now. But there's the rate of change. It's now compared to the 2010s. You're just seeing there's a, there's a step change. And that's all that really needs to happen for inflation to be above the 2% that we've become so used to. Sure. Um, and that's, I think the 2% is still, is certainly priced into bond markets. I think equity investors also still just anchored to that being the norm and mm. adding anything to de derail that very comfortable level of assets going up with very benign inflation, that, that has an impact on valuations that we haven't seen yet. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree with most of that. And then sort of moving on, you know, if the fund's 25% equities, what is it in the rest of the fund that you've got at the moment that makes up the 75%? Yeah, so it's a combination of the indexing bonds I mentioned that's the largest allocation. It's just under 40%. Uh, we have cash uh, that used to be just cash and are now actually earning something on it. So it's mm -hmm. mainly insured dated uh, gilts and treasuries. And then we've got just over 10% in gold. Um, so inflation protection in two two of, out of those three legs, if that sure. makes sense. Um, gold uh, brings me on neatly to the, the, the chart we've got here. So we've got a chart of gold in sterling terms going back to 1975-ish. And I think what's interesting about this, obviously, in the, the late 70s, gold went through the roof um, from kind of £70 an ounce, this would be, to 300 so probably quadrupled in the late 70s. And then actually it went nowhere for another 30 years, did it? It was sort of still yeah. still around the same levels, if not a bit lower, in the early noughties, and then went on another tear for a sort of 10-year period from 2000 to 2011. It's had another sort of 5, 10 years where it's not really done a huge amount. I mean, if you sort of eyeball the chart... 
do you think that we are entering a period where gold perhaps does provide a good hedge and some good returns and good ballast in portfolios? Yeah, so we were kind of looking at gold returns. I think since we've owned it in the mandate, it's annualised 12%, which a lot of equity investors would never think of mm-hmm. as being what gold delivers. I think it's, it's a really attractive asset Is that asset in sterling class. terms? Or That's in sterling terms, yeah, okay. thank you. Um, so it is important to say we, we don't hedge the gold as well. Mm. Um, there is clearly that sort of inverse correlation between the dollar and gold. W- would um, you... Would you hedge? No, uh, we sort of see it as actually it dampens the volatility because the dollar's strong, often uh, gold will be weaker. But also, you know, we're protecting against risks to the purchasing power of our investors' capital, and that is in sterling. Mm. Um, So actually Mm. it gives us um, that that wider protection. I think also we have quite a lot of dollar exposure, so we're quite quite positive Mm. on the dollar. Um, But in terms of where we go from here with gold, our view is that you don't need gold if you're in an environment of real growth where inflation is stable, where interest rates are potentially sort of at a kind of medium level, but there's a sort of positive sloping yield curve, most importantly. So you've actually just got an environment of strong real growth. That's not going to be good for gold. In a period where you've got a challenge to growth, which we still think you do, mm-hmm. um, but you've also got a response to that, which is up until recently just monetary uh, unorthodoxy and, and monetary mm-hmm. easing, but also fiscal easing. That's the environment where actually you need protection against that devaluation of, of paper currencies. Mm-hmm. And clearly we, we saw that gold benefited a lot during the period of QE in the 2010s. Um, and we think now you've got QE is potentially not at all in the toolbox today, um, but certainly fiscal spending, even before we're going into a recession, is very much there as something that governments and policymakers will use to try and stimulate the economy. And we would expect actually QE to return in a much more difficult environment. You saw it in the banking crisis of of this spring. Um, So that environment just creates more money in the system. It devalues any currency that you can print. um, And unfortunately, both sterling and and the dollar are within that so we need to protect um and those environments are inflationary gold has tended to be a great hedge in inflation so have you been increasing the gold weighting in the portfolio so we did increase it a little bit um during covid Uh, we Mm. added we have a royalty and streaming company um called franco nevada um colleague of mine's actually out uh, visiting them uh, today, um, in seeing one of their mines uh, in South America, it's actually in Peru. Peru, okay. Um, yeah. So they have investments in a variety of different mining operations, mm-hmm. but they are not a miner, which is really important. Mm-hmm. So they're not responsible for the capex that that entails for the array of external factors that can ultimately derail your production. Um, and yeah, yeah there's much no consistency. Like. Yeah, return on invested capital is not a thing, is it? No, like it's not a thing for mining companies. Loads of money and then it all blows up. And, then, and your yeah, variable costs. Are, your variable yeah. costs go through the roof. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then sort of allied to the kind of gold question, um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but any thoughts or discussions about crypto as part of the mix? Yeah, so um, we got asked a lot about this in 2021, and this is, might be the first time, which is good, contrarian, although I know it's um, done a little bit better recently. Um, we think crypto is a really interesting invention from the point of view, particularly the technology underpinning it. Mm-hmm. So I think the blockchain is what you're already seeing as a, a variety of use cases which are pretty transformative particularly in sort of tracking goods Uh, when it comes to crypto as an investment that's 
appropriate for our strategy is is a definite no. Uh, the volatility is also just off the charts. What is it? Sixty percent annualized or something? Yeah, it, in terms of the draw, talking about drawdowns, mm. um, I think the draw there's a ninety nine percent drawdown at one point for Bitcoin, um, and there are lots of other reasons as well. But it's not really a currency, as you say. If it's so volatile, can it really be a medium of exchange? It's a commodity, really, isn't it? I would have thought. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of NASDAQ commodity. It behaves really um, in tandem with risk assets and risk appetite. So in our view, that's really not providing any diversification in the portfolio, whereas gold tends to do pretty well when, when markets sell off. And, and last year was a really good case in point for that when crypto sell, sold off. But actually gold uh, in sterling terms was positive. Mm. Um, to come back to I mean, bonds and index linked gilt. So, you know, if I was clever enough two years ago, um, we were sort of in the pandemic, and I would have thought, do you know what? I think inflation is going to go up because supply chain issues and all that stuff. And then there was war in Ukraine, oil price went up. So I think I'm going to get loads of inflation. So what I'm going to go and do is buy some index linked gilts because yeah. that will protect me. And um, we've got a chart here of the um, an index linked gilt ETF. This is UK index linked government bonds, uh, which goes back five years. And you can see from the start of 2022, um, the total return on index linked gilts basically fell 50% during 2022 when inflation went from 2 to 15 and yeah. back again. Um, why didn't my index linked gilts work for me last year? Yeah, so the problem, and people often call them inflation linked, which mm. again it just should be a hedge. Um, the, the prices are driven by two things. One is expectations of inflation, mm -hmm. particularly if you're at the longer dated. It's all about what the market thinks inflation is going to be over that time frame. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily related to inflation today. Um, and the second driver of those returns is uh, the nominal yield. So, and this is not to get too technical, but the combination of that inflation expectation and nominal or just conventional yields is the real yield and that's what drives the price so ideally what you want for an inflation linked bond to do well is expectations for yields and interest rates to be low and expectations for in inflation to be high right and actually what you had last year was yields rose as interest rates started rising mm -hmm. expectations that that would persist into the future increased inflation and even now was just expected to stay anchored to this two percent that we're so used right. to um, so you just had this double whammy of the index-linked inflation, uh, inflation um, part, the break-even, doing absolutely nothing for you, um, and yields really hurting you. Mm. And if you were, I think, yeah, on the long data, it's the best example because that is the most sensitive to that to the change in those two things. Mm. Um, and clearly, you could have lost a lot of money. I would also say because we didn't own any UK gilts uh, last year and no index-linked gilts, they started. In 2022, they started the year incredibly expensive. Um, so it's a bit of a weird market because a lot of pension funds have to buy them to match liabilities. And that effectively has a forced buyer. It's pushed uh, the real yield way, way low, i.e. the price um, got to pretty egregious valuations. And that real yield was nearly negative four mm -hmm. um, at the start of 2022. What that means, negative four real yield, you are locking in. If you hold that for, was that 30 year? That was yeah, 20, um, 25 year. Yeah. yeah, okay. So if you hold that for 25 years, each over, over that period, you'll get an annualized negative four plus inflation. Right. So if inflation's four, 
you're not losing money, um, but you're, you're locking in a, a real return that's negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, it, it wasn't a particularly attractive start point. And we've got a chart here of real yields, both in the US and UK, and, and, and the red line here is, is UK real, 10-year real yields, which, uh, as you point out, was negative three, negative three and a half at the start of 2022. Um, and that's fallen pretty consistently over the last 10, 15 years. Now, obviously, the last 12, 18 months, we've seen a pretty abrupt um, round trip in real yields. So do you just want to explain, you know, if you buy an index linked guild that's 10-year, the real yield is what you earn after after inflation right so you yeah yeah. So you, yeah go on i'll leave you explain it yeah <laughs> so <laughs> well, and, and what's great here is is that this is actually far more interesting so there's a massive move as you said in both uk and us particularly in the uk so uk's gone from negative three and a half at the 10 year uh, to positive what was in the middle of august uh, positive nearly um sort of one and a half mm-hmm. so you have if you hold that for 10 years, you're getting one and a half plus whatever inflation turns out to be. So That's inflation RP, still RPI, right? And it's still RPI for the next seven years. Seven years and then in yeah. 2030, they're, they're mm. moving to CPIH, which is lower. So it's an effective default. Amazing that hasn't got mm. uh, very much attention. Mm. Um, it, it is reflected in the price movements, we think, broadly. Right. Um, mm. But yeah, you've got to be aware that RPI tends to be higher. So it's actually a better a better deal from mm. the government. No surprises that they've mm-hmm. slightly backtracked on that. Um, but yeah, you, you will get, at the moment, it's about one, positive one. So you'll get positive one plus whatever inflation is. So if inflation is four, 5% annualized, but with upside if inflation turns out to be higher, mm. which is frankly pretty attractive um, prospect and in an environment where we think inflation is going to be higher and at least more volatile we expect people are going to start paying up for these but at the moment no that it hasn't yet happened and we think again it's this like frogs in boiling water we're so used to inflation just coming back down and staying Mm. down and and we've almost got this sort of blind faith in central bankers that they are going to just quell this inflationary storm and actually we don't need to worry about RPI being anything above its long-term average, which is around three and a half. And that's roughly what's priced into UK index link gills. Mm. So if we get inflation averaging 3% on RPI for the next 10 years, plus you yeah. get a real, when you get 4% a year nominal, they're yeah. taking basically no credit risk, right? Because it's UK government, exactly. no inflation risk. It's yeah. got a bit of volatility. And that, that sort of, you know, compared to, I mean, it's quite interesting what we do in the sense that we sit down with, you know, individuals and talk about investments. You know, for the last 10 years, we have been in the teener environment. You know, there is no yeah. alternative. Cash yeah. has been yielding you naught. Gills has been yielding you one. You know, yeah. if you want, you know, most of our kind of clients, roughly speaking, want 5% a year. For the sake of, I'm just plug that number up. 5% a year is what I want in my capital. Well, you've not been able to get that by owning anything like this, cash. Yeah short-dated bonds, it's been impossible. So you've had to go out the risk spectrum, whether that's equities or yeah. buy-to-lets or crypto or gold or whatever it is. You know, People have been pushed out of the, the risk spectrum. And what's interesting in the last kind of 18 months is we've seen an element of repricing, but there doesn't seem to have been, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're now getting 1% real yield on UK index and guilt, 2% on US tips, yeah. treasury and protection securities, why have we not seen kind of more capital float back to those yeah. assets? Out of equities. Out of, mm-hmm. and and other risk equities. assets, agreed. We don't think it makes sense, but I think probably the, talking of catalyst, but maybe the, the thing that provokes investors to realise 
actually, hang on, I'm taking a lot of risk on my equity investments for very little risk premium. There's, you know, you look on the earnings yield on the S&P, for example, versus the 10-year, I don't know if you might have a ready-made chart. chart here of the valuation on the US equity market, which is a forward valuation. So it's got the S&P on kind of 18 times earnings yeah. based on what I think probably 10% growth in the earnings. I think, yeah, exactly. Into estimates. Um, I think that's the next 12 months. So it's and, about 20 yeah. times spot, isn't it, I think, roughly speaking. Yeah, and you have to go, so we've come down a bit from the sort of stratosphere of 21, mm. but you actually, before then, you have to go back as far as 2002 to see a valuation that is that high mm. on the S&P. So, yeah, as you say, people still clearly happy to take equity risk. I think this year to date probably confirmed that bias in their minds because AI has given another leg um, to mm. a bubble, that's what sometimes called an echo, echo bubble, and it has uh, similarities to what happened last year, or what happened in 2021, rather. But it is our strong view that people will realise the risk they're taking as and when equities, uh, and as, as and when earnings expectations move down. Yeah. So if we go into a recession, suddenly, even if you're invested in Microsoft, mm-hmm. people are going to be spending less on business software, and maybe that valuation of nearly 30 times, ooh, I'm not prepared to pay that, I'm getting you know, very little return for my risk here, I think I'll I'll just take the sure thing of five. Mm-hmm. And I think it really takes that realisation of, of the risk that people are taking. Last year was a little bit of that. So you have seen some reallocation away from equities if you take out uh, the magnific- Magnificent Seven mm-hmm. uh, from the S&P. Um, the equal weighted S&P has not really done anything this year. So there is a little bit of a shift, um, but we think it really takes a proper downgrade of, of the earnings cycle. Mm. And Microsoft's still a reasonable holding in the portfolio. It's been in the portfolio for a long time. Yeah. It's so, not cheap, uh, 30, 32 times. Yeah, it's on sort of 28 forward earnings mm. today. Yeah. Um, and, and look, we want to own that for, unless the investment case changes, but we expect to earn that, own that for at least the next five to 10 years. It's a great company um, and actually in AI, it will generate returns from that that we can see. Mm. Um, It will not be immune, and and none of our stocks will be, if we go into a recession. And so we had 6% in Microsoft in 2021. We now have just a little over 2%. So it's really sizing that for the risk, but also being on the front foot Mm. so we can add to that holdings that's quite small. And in the index linked and and, um, sort of direct guilt, direct treasury positions, are you... Are you quite short-dated or are you adding duration? Yeah, predominantly short-dated. I think what everyone is learning about the index link market, to mm. your point, last year, long-dated, you rely on the market efficiently pricing in what mm. inflation is going to do. So you're really, you're hostage to what the market thinks, yeah. uh, both in terms of year, nominal yields, but also inflation expectations. And so it's much more speculative. With a short-dated, we and we predominantly... Um, sub five years in terms of our index linked exposure, mm. you actually just receive what inflation turns out to be because you tend to hold those to maturity. Um, so there's much less risk mm. in terms of re- relying on a, on a rational bond market. But you're not you're not holding those index linked because you expect inflation projections to to change massively. It's just the real return and the opportunity you see from this point without actually much changing the landscape. Yeah, so I think eventually those inflation expectations will change. Well, okay. um, you I think do, they'll go up? I do think they'll go up. Mm. So if you look at the US, 
almost across the curve, it's around 2% is the break-even. So that's what the bond market's yeah. pricing in uh, for inflation. And what we've had, and, and your chart earlier, which shows that obviously inflation in the US got up to 9%, yeah. it's now back down to just below 4 It's sort of happening in a fairly straight line, yeah. um, absent the last month. And I think people are just extrapolating that. But as soon as you, and, and we would expect the response to the next recession to be quite a stimulative one, probably quite a strong fiscal response, given that that's sort of on the table now after COVID, um, we'd expect that to be quite inflationary in the aftermath. So it might take for us to go through a recession and see inflation, inflation perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah, perhaps even yeah. lower. But then if, if inflation starts, and you sort of talk about these double peaks that we saw in the 70s, if we get a second peak and people might actually start to realise, hang on, that wasn't just a one-off. Um, that That's something that's more persistent. Mm. And I think it will take that um, mm. for inflation to actually stabilise or at least return to higher levels before people recalibrate that expectation. Mm. And you touched on debt there, and we've got a, um, a couple of charts here. Um, so the left-hand chart here is the cumulative change in the US Fed funds rate um, from March 2022 to date. And you can see in red how interest rates in the US have basically gone up by five percentage points in the space of a year, just over a year, which is far more aggressive and far further than any rate hiking cycle that we've seen. Um, you know, notably, there was a very shallow rate rising cycle in December 15 to December yeah. 18, which is, yeah. you know, rates went up 2% in three years, which was under Yellen and then Powell. Probably. And then Powell and then the yeah. pivot. And then the pivot. Um, the the right-hand chart is probably the more interesting thing to come back to that point about you touched on kind of governments and fiscal largesse and, and inflation and things. You know, the, the quantum of debt, so this is um, the global quantum of debt between 1970 and today as a percentage of GDP. You know, it's gone from 100% of GDP to 250% of GDP with much of the rise kind of government debt. And governments yeah. have essentially taken a lot of debt off private balance sheets through QE, through you know, the last 10 years, but also through the pandemic when they were effectively underwriting the economy. Like my, my sort of view is that you've got you know, a big deficit in the US and none of the politicians appear to want to address it. You've got, you know, the economy is effectively doing fine and they've got, what, an 8% deficit? Yeah. If it goes to recession, that doesn't get any smaller. Um, you know, what, is it, what, what kind of breaks here or does anything break or can we kind of continue this kind of facade that we appear to be in? Yeah, it, I mean, it does help if you can get your central bank to buy your own debt. Your own um, yeah, yeah. So I think there is, particularly for the US um, and countries with monetary sovereign, sovereignty, so the UK is included in that, and mm -hmm. clearly Europe less so, um, there is a, an ability to just keep on printing. I think our major concern with this, and to your point on going from 100% of GDP to 250, it, it becomes a break on growth. And particularly a break on growth when your interest payments are no longer effectively zero. Um, so we look at kind of also on a global level, uh, debt to GDP across sectors, so across households, uh, corporate and government, and that's well over 300% now. And if you just assumed a 2% rate of interest on that debt, you need to grow nominal GDP 6% just to pay the interest to two times times 300 yeah, yeah. Um, and that's quite a healthy level of growth yeah. um, and suddenly if you go from two to six uh, you're talking 18 
Um, so there's just no way that this can be good um, for the sort of long-term growth, but I, I just don't think it's sustainable. And it's why we think ultimately you need to have a period of financial repression to rebalance this, which effectively financial repression is having interest rates lower than your rate of inflation. Mm. And we've already got the inflation, um, but we, we question the, the sustainability of interest rates at this level. If inflation's coming back down to two, mm. And this is what's priced into bonds, which is why I think it's quite interesting. Inflation of two and rates of five. Um, and that's a very strongly positive real rate, mm. which is going to add to the debt. If mm. you have, as you did after the Second World War, a period where actually your real rates are significantly negative, you, you bring down the value of that debt in, in yeah. real terms. And I, was, I was about to say, effectively, we're not dissimilar positions post-World War II. We had a huge debt load from the cost of the war. Yeah. And you had rates were basically held. I mean, you had the sort of gold standard in those days. So it's not entirely comparable. But rates were basically 2 two to 3% mm. for yeah, 20 they, years. Yeah, they were held. And, and, the, and the capital controls, I think, yeah, you can start playing with all sorts of mm. Um, ways and obviously you've seen it in Australia already, Japan, yield curve control, mm-hmm. um, which is something that has, has been tried and, is, and might be a way that central bankers kind of consider, okay, how, how can we enable this financial repression? But I think we're quite far from that yet because at the moment it's all about beating inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, but thinking about the debt, I think when, when growth starts to tail off is, is going to be a major priority. Mm. Cheerful stuff, eh? Sorry for he's, he's, he's fixed on his mortgage for another 10 years yet. He's all right. Well <laughs> he's all right. Um, any sort of final thoughts that you want to give us? I mean, sort of, you, you know, relatively negative on equities, index linked bonds, gold, you know, all useful assets in the portfolio, getting paid to own those things, which I think is, yeah. you know, nice. Um, I, I think for people that listen, we, we the equity stance is if you've got 25% equities, where. Which sectors do you like or, or where do you think there is opportunity? Yeah, so I think there will be new sectors that maybe weren't interesting 10 years ago mm. um, that will be in a slightly more inflationary environment and a slightly more capex-intensive yeah. environment as well. Um, so we're sort of looking at a few more industrial businesses, okay. not compromising on the quality of the company, <clears throat> so still really good return businesses, yeah. um, which you know, they've got that margin structure, um, they tend to be, you know, fairly critical and small ticket items. So in terms of cyclicality, we, we try and avoid the really cyclical end mm. of markets. We never invest, for example, in house builders. Um, but that return profile, I think, will be added to a much better growth rate if we go into a period of decarbonisation, um, yeah. but also a period of more manufacturing spend. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something that hasn't been in the portfolio so much in the past but could be in the future and then have you added anything recently that you can talk about or or you yeah so we and we do have companies that maybe you more associate with a trojan fund which are Mm. branded consumer goods businesses um one of which we've added recently which is heineken Mm-hmm. Um, and Heineken's had a pretty torrid time uh, yeah. since COVID, yeah. actually. I think the share price is now below um, where it was. And in terms of that as a, just a great brand mm. that we can see, particularly in emerging markets, having you know, a huge runway for growth. It's a family-owned business. It's very, very well managed and invested in, um, and it's premium beer. I mean, this is just going to benefit from particularly the emerging consumer whose wallet is going to be a lot bigger and yeah. their disposable income a lot a lot larger in ten years time, so on an all evaluation of 
low low to mid teens, which is where we've been yeah. buying it. Yeah. Um, that is a sort of isolated. Well, it's a minority of instances mm. where <coughs> actually you're really getting paid to take the risk. Interesting. Mm. We'll have a look at that. You like Heineken, don't you? No, well, you know, partial, occasionally. <laughs> um, Charlotte, thank you very much for your mm. time thank today. You. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's great. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this episode. Uh, any questions, then um, do get in touch, jonathan.raymond at causegeviet.com, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you.